Father, we come before you and we desire to learn from you, from your word. The stories that are listed here in your word are just incredible. The miraculous takes place. It's even miraculous that you have communicated to us, that you have reached out and let us know where we come from, the meaning of life, what is right and wrong, and where we are going. You provide for us answers. And we ask that you would clarify some of the things that you have written in Scripture, that we might know you more in your will here for us in this life. In Jesus' name, amen. In the kingdom of Israel, there was Israel that was to the north, and there was Judah that was to the south. These two kingdoms split. And this happened after King Solomon. Uh, God gave a promise to David that his son would be raised up, Solomon, and he would build the temple and he would rule Israel and there would be peace during his time. But because of sin, the sin of Solomon, God decided to split the kingdom. And to the north you had Jeroboam and he took ten tribes with him to the north. And Jeroboam and all the kings that came after him in the northern part of Israel, not one was righteous. They were all idolaters. They fell into sin and they were constantly judged. And Assyria came down and just ransacked them, ended up killing uh, the people that were there. And they were absolutely brutal uh, to the people in the northern kingdom. And that was a judgment that was brought on uh, to the people or uh, by the Lord for the people because they had forsaken God. The southern kingdom, you had a a couple of good kings down there that did right in the eyes of the Lord, but not one was like David. You know, they they gave their heart halfway to the Lord and they did certain things, taking down the Asherah poles, which were places of worship to false deities and things like that. But many kings were bad. And in the northern kingdom of Israel, there happened to arise a king named Ahab. Ahab was married to Jezebel. Now Jezebel was so wicked that there came upon her a judgment that she would not even be buried and she was, uh, she fell out of a window and pushed out of a window and when she hit the ground, dogs ate her body and all that was left was her head and her hands and that was a judgment upon her and Ahab He was a wicked king as well. And there was a prophet around at that time named Elijah. And Elijah was a thorn in the side of Ahab. Didn't like Ahab, or excuse me, Ahab didn't like Elijah at all. And there were just all kinds of problems that Ahab was involved in. And Elijah, since he was prophesying against Ahab in the northern kingdom, uh, his life became in a perilous state he was in danger a lot of being killed because the kings didn't want to hear a bad report from Elijah or any other prophet that might come up and so what happened was Elijah prophesied and said that there's going to be a drought in the northern kingdom he told Ahab this now they did communicate back and forth and he told him there's going to be this drought and the drought was going to last for several years And during that time, God told Elijah, I want you to go down to the Kirith Ravine and I want you to stay there. 
And there was nothing down there but a little brook that was running because it was a drought at that time. And every morning and every evening, crows would be bringing him meat and bread. And he sustained himself down there by the Lord. And after that brook dried up, God told him to go to Zarephath of Sidon. Now there, you have Tyre and Sidon on the coast of Israel. And right in between you have Zarephath. Now Zarephath is there. And when he got to the, the gate of the city, he saw this widow, this woman. And she's picking up little sticks. And she's picking up little sticks. Or as she's doing that, Elijah comes to her and says, Woman, I'd like you to go home and I would like you to prepare a cake of bread for me. And she turned to him and she explained to him that I only have this little uh, jar of, of flour and a little jar of oil. And I was going to bake the last bread for myself and my son. And then we were going to die. Apparently this, the famine was very severe. and People were dying during that time. And Elijah said, just go do it. And I promise you. Those little, that jug of oil and that jar of flour will never run out until the drought has ended. So the woman did that. She went home and she ended up baking the little cake of bread for Elijah. Elijah ate it and then she went to the jar and to the uh, jug of oil and flour. And lo and behold, there was more in there. And it sustained all three of them for the remaining years of the drought where people around them were dying everywhere because of this particular drought. Well, he ended up telling Ahab that the drought was going to end, but what happened with this particular woman while he was staying there is this woman's son, he died as Elijah is staying with this woman. And the woman, she laments it like, man of God, why have you come to me? My son is dead And because of that, Elijah, he took the little boy up into a room and prayed for him. And when he was prayed for, the little boy revived. He came back to life. And scripture says that he died. It's not that he needed to be resuscitated, so to speak. You know, that he was having trouble breathing, something like that. He was actually alive. No, he was dead. Stone cold dead. And Elijah prayed for him, and God raised him from the dead. And at the end of this, in chapter 17, this is the story at the end. In First uh, Kings chapter 17, verse 19 through 23, I'm going to read it to you. Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and he laid on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, O Lord, my God, you have brought tragedy also upon this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die. Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. And in verse 24, it says, then the woman said to Elijah, and this is the key. Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is truth. So there was a miracle that took place. Elijah was with this woman for years, apparently. 
And then this boy died. Miracle took place. Then this woman believed that you are a messenger of God to Elijah. And the word is true. So the miracle was given in order to establish not only the messenger, but the message. Now, Elijah, he had this servant with him called Elisha. Elijah and Elisha. Now, Elisha, he wanted to follow Elijah around. He was going to stick to him like glue. And this is where we get the chariots of fire. I was having a discussion uh, last week with some people in the church. And it was we think that he was taken up in a chariot of fire. Well, it actually says he was taken up in a whirlwind, that there was a chariot of UFO just going around. UFOs, they're in the news, right? This UFO was going around a chariot of fire, and Elijah was taken up in this whirlwind. Well, when that happened, Elijah told Elisha, because Elisha wanted double the spirit, the blessing that Elijah had. He goes, well, if you're with me when I'm taken, then you get double the blessing. Elisha did twice as many miracles as Elijah because he was there. He did not separate from his master Elijah and he got double the blessing that Elijah had upon him. Well, he had the same thing take place where he was able through God's power to raise another child from the dead. Now there was this woman in the city of Shunem and she was a Shunammite woman and her and her husband, she was younger, he was older and she was really gracious to Elisha. And Elisha had the servant Gehazi, and they would travel, and when they would go to Shunem, this woman ended up telling Gehazi and telling Elisha, look, you can stay at my house. I'll give you a little table, a bed, a little lamp in there. You can stay. Whenever you come through here, you can do that. And she was so gracious to him, fed him whenever he came, and Gehazi... And so Elisha wanted to do something special for this woman because she had been so gracious. And he says, do you want me to talk to the king to you, to you know, some of the military? You, you want me to talk to anyone? And Gehazi went to Elisha and said, you know what? She doesn't have any children. She's younger. He's older. And the possibilities have just gone by the wayside. And so she didn't ask for a child. But Elisha said, in one year, you're going to have a son. And so, you know, lo and behold, a year later, this woman has a son from her husband. The Lord kind of did what he did with Abraham. Uh, Abraham said, you know, I'm going to have a child. My body's dead. My wife's body's dead. What are we going to do here? And God healed them, and they were able to have children. Well, that happened with the Shunammite woman as well. Now, the Shunammite woman, her husband, was working out in the fields at the time it was to glean the harvest out there. And he was a young boy. Now, I talked to you um, that he could have been a little older. Uh, we don't know. But chances are he was probably preteen or a teenager. And he went out to see his father in the fields. And when he went out there, he started, it looks like he was screaming, saying, My head, my head. And the father had his servant take the boy to the Shunammite woman. And she sat down with him on her lap. And the boy died while on the lap. Well, the woman got up immediately and she told her servant, you start heading to Elisha because apparently he wasn't at her house. And he took off and the, the servant said, you know, there was some kind of conversation that took place that I'm not going to leave you behind. And she said, I will not cease to follow you. I'm going to follow you and we're going to go see Elisha. And so 
approaching in the distance, Elisha saw that the servant and the Shunammite woman were out there. And as they're walking towards him, the, the servant went ahead and told Elisha what was going on, but it didn't really give all the information. And the woman came up and said, my son is dead. And so Elisha sent his servant Gehazi with his staff. And when he got back to the house where the little boy had perished, he said, lay the staff on the child. Gehazi comes back and said, it didn't work. The boy's still dead. And so Elijah got there and he laid out on the child three times, hand to hand, mouth to mouth. He just lay right on him, prayed three times. And one time he got up and he walked around a little bit. He kept on praying and the boy's life returned to him as well. And that was a witness of the power of God in the messenger. So we have two cases of this. Now, this is not the only case. We know that Jairus in the book of Luke, chapter 8, Jairus' daughter becomes sick and ill. And Jesus comes into the house and they said, no, she's already dead. Don't worry about it. And Jesus said, she's not dead. She only sleeps. And they laughed him to scorn real good mourners aren't they laughed him to scorn and he said get out and so he went up to the room and he he basically said Tabitha get up Uh, and she got up and she was fine at that point so Jairus I'm sure became a believer at that point it established who Jesus was as the messenger and the words that he spoke as truth three examples of that the fourth example we have is Eutychus that we covered last week. Remember, his name means fortunate. And this is in, uh, excuse me, Acts chapter 20, verse 8. We're going to pick it up there. It said, there were many lamps in the upstairs room where they were meeting. Seating in the window was a young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep. And Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down through himself On the young man. This seems to be a pattern. I don't recommend this. Somebody dies in your presence, don't lay out on them, put your hands on them, face to don't just don't. Okay? If you want to pray for them to be revived, that's okay. You can do that. But you might be arrested uh, if you did something different like they did back in this time. So Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. And he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. So again, this young man, you could be up to 40 years old, but I think he was a young man. And he was up in the third story and fell out, probably broke his neck as he fell down and probably died instantly. Now this syndrome could be sermon sleeping sickness something like that or it could be morbid message malady that you could acquire while listening to a message in church the thing you're supposed to take away is don't fall asleep in church and you might survive that's one thing that you can take away with you but this this idea the boy died and i'm sure the the congregation there were they were just taken aback like oh no what a tragedy this is. And the, the parents were probably just weeping, taking up the child. It was, it was just a terrible, terrible thing. But when we die, death is just an interruption is what it is. Have you ever been running an errand and you get interrupted 
Like, say, you, you want to go to Home Depot to get some tarps for today. And on your way to Home Depot, you get a flat. And you get interrupted before you can get there. All of those things, I believe, are by design. God sets those up. And how much free will and how much providence of God plays in that, I'm really not sure. I just know both do. And so we can be interrupted with the best laid plans. And God says, no, not quite yet. We're not going to fulfill this quite yet. And that's what death is like. So when we die, we have a transfer. There is no transfer station like purgatory, but there is a transfer that we make from this life to the next. Now, I'm sure you've heard of what NDEs are, near-death experiences where people die and they come back. And they've written books about this. Several doctors, a few doctors have written books about this. And one doctor in particular, he decided that he was going to, since he was a, a believer, he said that when you die, these people, they have this heaven experience. They see this light, they go into the light, they see loved ones, they go into heaven. And whether that happens or not, I don't know. I, I don't know if that takes place. But he said, if the Bible is true, there's going to be people that have the opposite experience, that they're going to go to hell and they're going to come back. And sure enough, he was a doctor and he saw lots of people die and they came back testifying that uh, maybe their feet were on fire. It was a terrible thing and they ended up becoming believers. So there are testimonies on both sides of these NDEs, which means there seems to be consciousness outside of the body once the body dies. Of course, we know that from scripture. We were created to exist forever. We are created in the image of God. We will never cease to exist. Now, sometimes you might think as we're getting older, I wish I would cease existing, you know, because of the pain and the troubles that you have and just the breakdown of life. But again, there will never be a time where our existence will cease. Now, in this life, we may experience times of unconsciousness where we're not awake or we're not aware of what is taking place around us. But the Bible never teaches that in the next life we're going to have a lapse of consciousness because the glory of this life is one glory for the body. The glory of the next life is another glory. It talks about that in First Corinthians. And so our bodies are going to be different. And like I said, there is no indication from Scripture that we're even going to sleep when we get our new bodies. They're meant to exist forever. For instance, Jesus is a man as well as God. And as he is in heaven, do you think he says to the Father, Father, I need to go take a nap. He's not going to do that. He, he is an eternal being. He's conscious. All the, you think the angels say, oh, let's go to the dormitory and lay down for a while. You know, I'm kind of tired. The angels never tire. They never lose their strength. We are flesh and we lose our strength, but they don't. Now, it, it, let's go to the future a little bit. Once we die, should the Lord tarry and there's no rapture, he's not tearing, it's just our perception of him. Lord, would you hurry up? And he's, he's right on time for whatever he does. But say we die, we go to be with the Lord, and we come back and we have our glorified bodies. We're back here on earth. And we're living with the people who survived the tribulation period. And the laws of entropy, second law of thermodynamics, are going to be done away with. The way that the Lord would originally have the earth and the universe, it's going to be like that. 
And this idea of death and decay, since it's going to be put to the side, somebody who is considered a child will die at 100 years old. There are going to be many, many people that live 500, 1,000 years. They'll live all the way to the end of the millennial reign of Christ. Now, when we're up there and we're with the people who have repopulated the earth, or when we're here on earth and we, they repopulate it and we're here doing the Lord's work, he's going to put us in charge of doing his will on earth. Now, we're going to be assigned to different places along the planets, along this planet. It, it will be millions of us all over the world. And where we're going to go, I, I have no idea what it's going to be like, but the earth is going to be a wonderful place. Now, as we go to Israel, you're going to see the Dead Sea, and it's dead. I mean, you go down there, it's a thousand, more than a thousand feet below sea level. The dirt is dead around it. The salt and everything is down there. That's, water's going to flow from the Temple Mount area down to the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is going to rise and it's going to flow into the Red Sea. And it's going to be a paradise around there. And it talks about the cattle that'll be on the hills and they're going to be eating mash, which is a high caliber feed for donkeys and cattle, which is out there. It's going to be a wonderful place. It also says that in Isaiah, the moon will shine like the sun and the sunlight will be seven times brighter like the light of seven full days. So get the picture of what it's going to be like. We're going to have a new body. We're not going to have to sleep. The sun is going to be seven times brighter than it is now. And you're going to look at the moon. You won't be able to look at the moon because it's going to be like the sun. It's going to be so bright out there. We're not going to have to sleep. What do you think night's going to be like for us? We're just going to continue. Now, the people who live on earth here that survived the tribulation, they're going to have to sleep. I don't know how they're going to do it, blackout shades or whatever, but it's going to be super, super bright here. And so are we going to have to take a snooze and nap? No. When people wake up, oh, you've been awake the whole time. Yeah, I've been awake since, you know, we came back after the rapture and you don't have to sleep. And so that's what it's going to be like. We're going to exist forever. We're not going to have to sleep. It's going to be a great environment, which is there. And and that's what death is going to be like for us. Death is just a, a way station. It's a place we go through to get to the glorified body that Jesus brings us back here. Now, when we look at this idea of death and heaven and hell, we know scripture teaches us that those who believe in Jesus Christ go directly to heaven. Those who do not believe in Jesus Christ go directly to hell or the grave or Hades. In the future, it's going to be Gehenna, and that's the lake of fire, the eternal lake of fire. There are not three places. There are only two places. And so if you want to be the person that's here in the millennium, and it's seven times brighter during the day, and the moon shines like the sun, and it's going to be a great and glorious existence here, well, you accept Jesus Christ, and we do that by confessing him as Lord and Savior. But anybody who rejects Jesus is going to go to hell and after the millennial reign of Christ will be resurrected. Now, this last week, I had another opportunity. I put in my uh, one vehicle, I put my New World Translation. I carried it around with me. I think I've told you about this. 
And I've stopped here in Lakeside and I've talked to Jehovah Witnesses. I've talked to Jehovah Witnesses here in the driveway at the church. And, and when I've done it in the past, there can be people, they'll talk with you, they'll go back and forth, and I'll describe what happened this time. But you go back and forth and then somebody shows up that is just like angry, like sulfurous breath of the demon that's behind them, you know, just kind of hissing away. Well, this last week I went up to Alpine. I happened to have some business up there and I, I saw it there out there every Wednesday across from Joan McQueen Middle, Joan McQueen Middle School, right at the park where the fence begins. And I go, okay, Lord, I'll stop. So I did what I had to do. I came back. I turned around. I got out with my New World translation. I walked up to the two ladies that were there. I said, hello, ladies. And they said, well, hello, you. And we introduced our names to each other and said, you know, I have a New World Translation here because you cannot witness to them from the Bible or any other literature. You have to witness with the New World Translation. So I pulled it out and said, you know, I've been studying this and I have some questions. The one woman puts her hand on her hip and says, you're not going to be naughty, are you? And I said, no, I just have some questions. And then she says, are you an ex-witness? Because if you're an ex-witness, they're not supposed to talk to you because you've been excommunicated and you are anathema. I said, no, I am not an ex-witness. And then she said, are you a scholar? I said, well, yeah, no. I said, no, I, I'm not a scholar. I just study the Bible. I, I look at the Bible and, you know, I, I've studied the Mormons, Pearl Great Price, you know, the Book of Mormon, and I look at the New World Translation and I, I just have a question. I have several questions, but I'll, I'll just start with one. I said, do you guys have time? And they said, do you have time? I said, yes, I have all kinds of time. So I opened the scripture. Well, it's a bad scripture, but uh, I opened the scripture in the New World Translation to John twenty twenty eight, And I said, now I'm going to read it here, and I'm going to ask a question. And it said, and Thomas said, my Lord and my God. You've heard me talk about this before. So I'm actually using what I tell you guys. And so I turn it around, I have it highlighted, and I said, see? And the first comment was, that's a really old New World Translation. Where did you get that? And I said, well, I sent away to the Watchtower Organization in New York, and they sent it to me. And she was being real nice and everything. And I said, so my question is on this, did in the text Thomas call Jesus God? For 10 minutes, they would not answer the question. They just, no, what are, what are you trying to say? Are you a Trinitarian? I said, no, I, look, I just have a question of the text. What does the text say? The one woman turned and said, you're being naughty. And I, and I said, look, I just have a question about the text. Now, every time I do this, I think of what I could have said. And, you know, I should have gone to Acts 17.11. For the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians because they examined the scriptures daily to see if Paul, what Paul said was true. Or study to show yourself approved a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of the truth. I could have used that. But they didn't want to talk about the text. And then I said, or then they said to me, well, you know, you can just take a, text out of context i said i'm willing to sit i got time we'll, we'll go through the whole context they wouldn't do it I, I, i'm i'm just going i just have the question of the text here and it took about 10 minutes 
And at the end of that 10 minutes, there it comes. And from the side, she had been a witness, you could tell, for probably 300 years. And she pulled up and she just, oh, Jake, what are you trying to add? And oh, you know, I could tell there was a spiritual warfare going on there. And I just said, you know, let me ask you a final question. I said, if I don't choose the way of the Jehovah Witnesses, I get a second chance, right? Because that's their doctrine. Everybody's going to be resurrected, except for the really, really evil people. They won't be resurrected. But everybody gets resurrected. And so she said, well, if you get resurrected, I said, so I get a second chance if I get resurrected, right? She didn't want to answer the question. I I had to establish, yeah, if I get resurrected, I say, okay, so I'm going to get resurrected. I get a second chance. So if I don't choose the witness way, I'm still in like Flint. But I said, Hebrews, and I didn't say it quite like that. You know, I'm getting all worked up here. But, but when I went to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, I said, it's appointed unto man once to die and then comes judgment. There is no second chance. I said, so I'm going to leave you with this. If you're right, I get a second chance. If I'm right, there is no second chance. And I said, thank you. And I walked away. And it's always been the case. And I've never had a Jehovah Witness repent right there and say, oh, I need to accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I, I told them that I'm just being a witness. That's all I'm being. And just showing them the scriptures. And I had other scriptures, a few others that we went through. And it's a problem. And so, you know, we're dealing with the death. After you die, where are you going to go? What's going to happen to you? And, and we want to make sure we're communicating that clearly. We want to be prepared. We want to make sure. I, I wish God would have done a miracle right then to show that the messenger was valid and the message from the word was valid. That would have been great. But God chooses not to do that all the time. We know that Abraham, Abraham's bosom, remember Lazarus and Abraham? When that was taking place in the Gospel of Luke, the rich man said, send somebody back. And Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. And if they don't believe them, they will not believe even if somebody raises from the dead. So a miracle is not what will get somebody to believe. But a lot of people you talk to out there, they are just blinded, sometimes by the enemy, sometimes willfully. They will not listen to what the word says. They're just completely shut off, just like the woman who had been a Jehovah Witnesses for decades. And, and I've had that before, where one will come up from the side and be an additional person and you could tell the demonic activity they're just flying around because they get angry and I try not to get angry you know do any punching no, nothing like that you, you just you try to be a witness you know and you try to maintain being calm but the battle rages now with going back digressing here with the death of Eutychus you know, even though we may experience death, barring the Lord's return for his saints in the rapture, death is just an interruption. It, it's also a transition. Our earthly bodies will be transformed to our heavenly bodies. And even though death may entail pain and suffering, it's only temporary. You know, we fear that. How many people have you ever heard say, or maybe you've said it, I just want to die in my sleep. We don't want to experience any pain no matter how bad the pain is, it's going to be temporary. And the body does something peculiar. I think it's uh, designed by God. That 
when you experience some excruciating pain, the body shuts down and doesn't let you feel it when it gets to a certain point. Uh, and some people, you know, I've heard stories of people breaking their backs, getting up and walking, no pain whatsoever. And then after they get to the hospital, they can't walk anymore. And, and they're able to do things because the body, it's not computing in the body that there's so much pain. And we worry about the pain. We don't want to suffer. We don't want any pain. We want everything to be fine. Just keep in mind the pain passes and you get to go to the next level, so to speak. Now, this is not... Uh, reincarnation to the next level it's just going from here to your glorified body that god will provide so uh, during the new heaven and the new earth will there be pain and sorrow will we experience pain and sorrow in the millennium because you know we after all we already died in the book of revelation it says god's going to wipe away every tear no more sorrow no more pain no more suffering but that's after the earth gets destroyed and there's a new heaven and new earth. When we are here on this earth with our glorified bodies, we are going to go to funerals. There will be people that inhabit the earth that will die. And we're going to be there. And we're going to be friends with them. And we're going to end up weeping for them, just like Jesus would weep for Lazarus. So we're still going to have some amount of pain. Is there still going to be injury? Yes, I think there will be for the people who are here on earth. They'll get injured and we'll be able to pray for them. And since God's Holy Spirit's working in us, they get immediately healed. We don't need any hospitals. You know, it's just like, well, if you're going to die, it's probably, it's not going to be like it is now. We're not going to have a corrupt system with the insurance and going to hospitals and doctors and all of that. God is going to make it one. It it says in scripture that Jesus is going to bind up the bruises of Israel. And and so I think there's going to be a lot less of that, but we will still experience it when we go to the millennium. Beyond that, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more suffering. And, And some people in this world, they get confused and they go, well, how do you know what good is unless there's bad? Well, we know that now, but our natures will so totally change, we won't have that in the future. And that's hard to comprehend, because what is life full of? Pain, sorrow, suffering. The moment you're born, you start dying. You know, that, that's what the cells do. We slough off cells and we start dying. So the message that Paul was giving during this time, it was all night to the next day. Just continuing. Now, when the young man fell out of the window, do you think the people were listening a little more attentively after that? Yeah, because the messenger was established and the word was established that he was given. And it's not in a service, when you go to a church service, it's not the worship that sustains. It does prepare the heart, but it does not sustain. It's not the exercising of spiritual gifts that sustains that's not it it's for the benefit of the body but that's not what sustains us as a church it's not the offering up of prayer requests that sustain us no it's god who sustained us and we we end up offering up prayers but that's not what the core thing that sustains us the core thing that keeps us together is the doctrine of the church that's why it was so important in all of these cases whether it's elijah elisha 
Jesus or Paul that whatever they taught was established by a miracle. We need to understand what they taught and follow what they taught. All these other things are wonderful for the church body, whether it is prayer, the spiritual gifts, the worship, all that's wonderful. But you have to know what you believe. If you don't know what you believe, you are open to error. And error begets error. And there's a lot of error out there now in the churches. And and you're just going to have to be aware of it. You're going to have to know what Scripture says and be able to say, no, that's unscriptural. You have to have that doctrine in your back pocket ready to pull out any time. 1 Timothy 4.16, I quote this often. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. You'll be able to tell someone how to get to heaven. And the world, they're all about the works. If you ask somebody normally, do you think you're going to go to heaven? Well, I'm a good person. They refer to their works. And there's not a single work that will get you to heaven. But that's contrary to the way the world thinks. We are evaluated based on what we do and if we do things for others. God looks at us and says, your mind based on who you believe. And that's what we want to communicate. So that suffering turned to joy upon God working through the Apostle Paul and restoring the life of Eutychus. And it was a tremendous thing. I, I would have just been in awe to see a miracle like that. Somebody being raised from the dead. Now, from verses 13 to 16, he just starts journaling. Luke does. He starts journaling the process of Paul traveling. It goes, or it says, he went, in verse 13, on ahead to the ship and sailed for Asos, where they were going to take Paul aboard. He had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. I looked up some of these places, Asos, Mytilene, Chios, uh, Miletus, and Samos. I looked them up to see what they would look like. And it's Mediterranean flair. The water is crystal clear. The islands that are in this area. It's just a beautiful setting. And you try to retrace where Paul went. And some of these places have the ruins from the time of Paul. And big buildings were there. Some of these big structures that were there. But you get an idea of where Paul was. It's, it, again, it's like when you go to Israel. You go, Jesus walked this road right here. He was on this road. He was on this Temple Mount. He went over to this area. This is the Capernaum synagogue where he taught, where he started his ministry. You're going to go to those exact places. Whenever these things are talked about in the future, you go, I've been there. I know what this looks like. So it goes on in verse 14. When he met us at Azos, we took him abroad, our board, and went to Miletus, our Mytilene. The next day, we set sail from there and arrived at Chios. The day after, we crossed over to Samos, and on the following day, arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to set to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. Now, why would he be on, oh, I got to get there by this particular time? There were three major feasts that the Jews celebrated that required all adult males to go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem during these three feasts would just inflate with millions of people. Of course, the Jews who were corrupt at that time, they ended up turning it into a business. And that's what Jesus was so upset about. That's where he turned over the tables of the money changers. And and these feasts that they had, the the three that they would have to 
attend that they'd have to go to Jerusalem for, or Pesach, or, or Passover. Also, uh, Shavuot, which is the Feast of Pentecost, or Feast of Weeks, and Sukkot, which is the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, even in the United States, depending on which community you go to, you may see uh, some of the Jews, the practicing Jews, they will set up a little structure in their backyard and they'll put palm leaves over the top and they'll mingle around that for, or live, some will actually live in it for an entire week where Passover, Passover is a day, but the Feast of Unleavened Bread that comes after that is for seven days. And so these these different feasts that they had, and I'll just name them for you. There's the Passover Feast of Unleavened Bread, Feast of First Fruits, Feast of Pentecost, Feast of Trumpets, Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. They had a calendar, a religious calendar that they had to follow. And of course, these particular feasts, we know what Passover is. Passover is where they slaughter the lamb and the blood goes on the doorposts and the lentils and they have to eat the entire lamb and there's a whole ceremony that you go through today in a Jewish Seder where they recount this. The Feast of Pentecost, this is when the church was born, the Feast of Weeks and then there's the Feast of Tabernacles where you live in the tabernacle, a little hut and it reminds them of being in the wilderness at that time. And these are significant. So that's why Paul decided he had to be in Jerusalem at the Feast of Pentecost because... The Old Testament required that. Now, did he have to be there? No, he was no longer under the law. But he wanted to go there to be a witness of who Jesus was, and he could do that best being there in person. So that's why he wanted to get there to be a witness to his fellow Jews. Now, Paul makes an address here. In verse 17, he addresses the Ephesian elders. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. He had a church conference where the leaders go. Now, they have those types of conferences. I just talked about the men's conference that's coming up. I think it's November on that sheet. Well, there are pastor's conferences too. You go to pastor's conferences, and, and what do you learn at those pastor's conferences? Well, if we are Mormon, we'd learn the secret handshakes and the hugs and all that stuff. But we don't do that. We just learn the Word of God, what the Word of God says, and specifically what to do in positions of leadership and it's a great assistance because you get to listen to people who have been through the ropes so to speak they've had the problems they tell you this is the best way to handle particular instances in the church and it's a great help at one point uh, in the ministry here I felt it was like going and getting a special IV with a slow drip that just refreshed uh, because of the pastors that were speaking. And, and it was good. And so from Miletus in verse 17, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. So he, he was an open book to them. And that's how the pastor or the leader is supposed to be. You're supposed to be an open book. People want to know about you. You, you tell what they want to know. And, and you can establish what your life is like in Christ. And that's what Paul did. He goes on to say, I serve the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. And so he was a humble guy too. But he was always up for a fight. Uh, little Paul the apostle, you know, I've given you descriptions of him before. He was a humble man. 
And just like Moses, there was no one more humble on the face of the earth. And this is one of the precepts for leaders. You're supposed to be an example of humility. You're not supposed to quarrel. Uh, And you're supposed to give deference to those who are weaker. You're supposed to help, be the servant of all, that type of thing. And so Paul was an example of humility. So was Moses. So was Gideon. And the servants, Jesus was humble, but he was up for a verbal fight, wasn't he? Cleared the temples. He he talked to the uh, Levites who were out there, argued with them, called them a brood of vipers. I mean, he had stinging language for the people who were there. But he was humble on the inside. And he asks us to be humble as well. And then also Paul endured hardship. For the person who gets into the ministry or is an elder or is a deacon, they're supposed to endure. You know, life's tough. I just read something this morning, a little devotion that was sent to me. And it talked about, I don't feel like it. And being in leadership of any any level or just in a family, being a, a mother or a father, can you say, I don't feel like feeding you today. Feed yourself. Is that what you do with little kids? No, you don't. If, if they're 20 years old, it might be a problem. But if they're little kids, you know, you got to feed them. You got to take care of them. You got to wipe their noses and change their clothes and their bedding and clean their toys. You have to do all of that. Well, the same thing applies in the church. Uh, and Paul, when he gives the qualifications for somebody in the church, he says the, the person has to manage their family well. They take care of their kids. They take care of their wives. And he wrote to Timothy that the man who does not take care of his family is worse than an unbeliever or an infidel. And so that's a person who is inside the church that desires to be in leadership, that you have to endure hardship. In this little devotion, it went on to say, what if you get up in the morning and you didn't get much sleep and there was a problem and you wake up and you just say, I'm not going to church today. I don't feel like it. And of course, at the end of the devotion, it says, Get up, Bambi. You know, it doesn't say that, but get up and do the work. It's not based on how you feel at any time. You're just supposed to be obedient. Just get up and do what the Lord would have you do. And that's what Paul did. No matter what the circumstances were, we know he was stoned, left for dead, shipwrecked, and uh, he was bit by uh, snakes and just all kinds of problems that he had. He just goes, okay, another day, another glorious day in paradise. And he got up and he did the will of the Lord. And also, he did not show any hesitation in proclaiming the whole will of God. Verse 20. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks and the and that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now Compelling, uh, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I am, all, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship are facing me. So first, the hesitation. Have you ever been a, in a situation like when I was driving to Alpine? I saw the Jehovah Witnesses there. I go, and I got this little tinge on the inside of the flesh, going, no. You have too much to do. Don't stop. And I'm going, no, I'm going to stop. I'm going to talk to them, even though my flesh was going, oh, you've, there's too many things today. Don't do that. 
And the leader as well, you, you don't hesitate. Just go, I'm doing this. I'm going to go talk to this person. Do you know what it is if you don't want to talk to somebody about the Lord? Number one, it's your flesh. Number two, it's the world. They'll reject you. Number three, it's Satan coming in saying, don't do it. And, and, and then you get the demon-possessed people that come along and say, don't do it. And, and you give them the message. And, and so you should not hesitate. If you see somebody is in need, they need prayer or something like that, just say, hey, is there anything I can pray for you for? You, do you know who Jesus Christ is? That type of thing. The Lord will compel us if you just open to it and he'll bless our efforts going forward. And now he's compelled by the Spirit, verse 22, and he's going to Jerusalem. What is this being compelled by the Spirit? We know what being compelled to be hungry is, right? Like yesterday, I, I, was, I went to Home Depot and I'm coming back and I just got this pang of hunger. It's like, I am hungry. I text Patty, want a Wendy's hamburger? She goes, oh, yes. And so we, we had hamburgers, and it was great, and some French fries, and I, I had this compelling desire to eat. Well, Paul had this compelling desire to go to Jerusalem. What is that? Do you find that in your gut? Was it a feeling that he had? What is the compelling of the spirit? What is that like? Is it something that is just our flesh, you know, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, lean not to your understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he'll direct your path. You may feel something is right, uh, but uh, you know, there is a way that seems right unto a man, but in the end thereof is destruction. So how do you know if it's the Holy Spirit compelling you to do something? And I've had that before. You know, Talk to people or go somewhere or do something, but you can't rely solely on your heart. You know, in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all and beyond cure. cure who can understand it? The thoughts of intentions that are our heart are always evil. And it's only by the graciousness of God, the Holy Spirit working in us, that it's different. And if we were left to ourselves, it would be mayhem on this planet. And so God says, don't trust in your heart. But how do you get the compelling of the Spirit? Well, first, I think it starts out as... A feeling. You just, oh, I, I, I have this concern. And you should pay attention to the concern. Especially if it's not based in selfish desires. And you can pick that out right away. Is it self- My hunger was selfish desire. I wanted to feed myself. I wasn't going to deny myself. If the desire is to go somewhere and there's no self involved, pay attention to that. If it's to minister to someone, pay attention to that. Now, that doesn't mean vacate wisdom. Use wisdom, but pay attention to that. And then people will come along, and God will use people to establish what you should do. And that is the compelling of the Holy Spirit working in other people as well. So you have it in your heart. You may find something in Scripture, uh, and, and that is supposed to guide you. And you use wisdom in that. But Paul was compelled, and it was not just based solely on a feeling. So there's going to be an inward witness on the inside and an outward witness. But if you're never giving time to pay attention to what that is, you'll never hear it. And you'll just fly by the seat of your pants. That's why it's crucial we spend time with God. We ask him, what is it you want me to do, Lord? And you'll get this sense of, 
like coming to Lakeside, you know, opening up a church in Lakeside. Got this sense like there needs to be a church in Lakeside, needs to be a church in Lakeside. It was confirmed inwardly and outwardly. And by those who were around us in the church at that time, even with those outside of the church, it was confirmed. So that's how you get this sense or this feeling you're supposed to mediate that through the scripture, through other people. Uh, pray about it and he goes in verse 24 however i consider my life worth nothing to me if only i may finish the race and complete the task the lord jesus has given me the task of testifying to the gospel of god's grace and so when god compelled him to go to jerusalem he didn't know what was going to take place but he considered his life secondary and i'll probably end with this here There's a few more points, but I'll get those next week. The labor of the Lord is more important than our very lives. Again, we don't get rid of wisdom. We don't put ourselves in harm's way on purpose to test the Lord. We don't do that. But we prioritize God's work over personal preference. I'm going to say that again. We prioritize God's work over personal preference. If you're saying... Yeah, I don't feel like it. It doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter what we believe. It only matters what God says. And if we prioritize that, our lives are so much better. But if we're just flying by the seat of our pants, we're not seeking after discernment from God, we're not asking him to establish the way that we should go, then the life is going to be mayhem. That's the message that is here in Acts. And the the people that I talked about, Elijah, Elisha, Jesus, Paul, the word was established, the messenger was established. God can do that through us as well. He can give you a reputation, a reputation that may precede you, and God can use you in that way. Paul definitely had that reputation. Remember, he started out with just Barnabas, and by the time we see him in the last chapter, he had seven or eight people that are named around him. There's probably more. God established him to get his word out. My prayer for you this morning is that You will give yourself to the word, to the Lord, prioritize whatever task he would have you do, and do not put your personal preference up in front of that. If he wants you to go somewhere, do something, be involved in some way, do a ministry, pray for someone, pay attention to that. If you pay attention to that, you will be blessed because he will end up using you. And once the Lord uses you in a particular way to be a witness, you go away going, that was good. That was of the Lord. And there's joy and contentment in that. If you resist that and say, no, I'm tired. I don't want to. I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want to fell those people in church, a bunch of sinners. I don't want to deal with them at all. You do that and you're going to miss the blessing. So may God give you the strength to persevere, to dive into his word and to be in fellowship. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the witness of Paul just being obedient to your call to go to Jerusalem even though he didn't know what was going to happen to him there and we know the Lord from your word that he fell in harm's way but we ask that you would help us to persevere as well whether it's the pain in this life the suffering of rejection whatever it might be help us to be faithful to you in all these things and give you consideration first in Jesus name and the church said please stand